Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. So we are currently teaching through the entire Old Testament book of Ruth as a pastoral team. And for the past two weeks, we have taken a deep dive into Ruth chapter one. Um, In Ruth chapter one, we learn of a family from the land of Israel who lived during a very bad famine. They moved to enemy territory because they were hungry and they wanted to find food. While there, the man of their house, Elimelech, he dies. And then the two sons marry. Thank you. The two sons marry. Well, thanks so much. So while there, the man of the house dies. Um, the two sons get married. And these husbands now also die. These were some big, dramatic life events. And to complicate this tragic story, these, women's were, these women were in dire straits because women in that day, they were entirely dependent upon men. A decade passes, 10 years. Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, they decide to return home to Bethlehem because the famine had passed. Kind of sounds like a movie, right? Well, if you missed the last two weeks, I invite you to go to the Antioch website and listen to these sermons because both Evan and Nathan have given us incredible insight to an application from Ruth chapter one. But with that, today we're going to jump into Ruth two. And I love Ruth chapter two because it's the story of a brave female who finds a long lost relative. It's not every day that you stumble upon a new family member. But strangely enough, this actually happened to my family. You see, my dad, Steve, he's this genealogy nerd. Uh, He'd probably appreciate if I said genealogy buff. Um, And when my husband, Travis, came down to meet my family for the first time, my dad printed out a family tree that spanned the entire living room wall. Um, But in all of his research, he submitted his DNA and got a 99% match, which means either a half-brother or a grandfather. So they were put in touch with each other and made plans to meet for breakfast. Lo and behold, on that morning, my dad, Steve, met his other half-brother named Steve. Seriously, we call him OBS, other brother Steve. (laughs) And so this morning, I invite you to enter into the story of two women and the faithful presence of God. But before we do that, please join me, let's pray. Uh, God, we come before you and we are so thankful that you long to be known, that you've given us your word and the story of Ruth so that we can know more about you. We ask that you'd stretch our imagination and that you'd meet us in the story of Ruth. Help us to know you better when we leave here this morning, God. Draw near to us. Let your presence fall upon us, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so Ruth 2. Ruth 2 begins with a bit of an aside. Now, growing up, my favorite TV show was Saved by the Bell. And Saved by the Bell, um, there was this character named Zach Morris, and they wrote his character so he could freeze time and talk to the audience. And this is what an aside is. And Ruth 2, first verse, the author gives us an aside. Basically, he calls time out 
so he can give us some insider information. There is a man named Boaz. He lives in Bethlehem. And this is great news because he is a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. He's not quite an other brother Boaz, but he's something close. But Naomi hasn't seen him for a decade and Ruth hasn't met him. But we have been let in on this little secret. You see, this story, which for all of chapter one has been filled with heartache and hardship, is finally about to take a good turn. There is hope on the horizon because of Boaz. So speaking of Boaz, here are some things you'll wanna know about him. His name literally means strength is in him. The author has made it obvious, as we've seen in weeks past, that names are a big deal in this story. Each name matters and it has a significant meaning. So Boaz, Bo means in him, as means strength. Boaz, strength is in him. He's in high standing in the Bethlehem community and he's the, the owner of a large field and he has hired workers, which means he's got some money. You see, in short, he's a single, rich, local dude who is a follower of the one true God. And then the author calls time in and the aside is over. So we find ourselves back in real time with Ruth and Naomi. They're in Bethlehem and they are hungry. But before the story continues, the author makes sure that we have not forgotten that Ruth is a foreigner. See, in the minds of the locals, this woman is from Moab. And the Moabites had caused a big problem for the Israelites. Their reputation is clearly stated in the book of Numbers. Check it out. Numbers 25, one through three. The men of Israel began to commit sexual sins with the women of Moab. The women invited the men to feasts and sacrifices to honor their gods. The people ate the sacrifices and bowed down in front of the statues of those gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the God named Baal or Baal. The Lord became very angry with Israel. This was a part of their history. In the locals' minds, Ruth was the seductress. She was the outsider. She was not welcome. She was the enemy. But, the but despite the town's naysaying, Ruth takes up some initiative and requests permission from Naomi to go find some food. Naomi's response is brief. She says, go ahead, my daughter. Now, this is interesting because in chapter one, we read that Naomi learned that the famine in Bethlehem had passed when she was working the fields in Moab. So question, why didn't Naomi join Ruth in the fields? After all, Naomi was the local from Bethlehem. And I suspect that Naomi was caught up in her grief. You see, she had just returned home. And upon return, she had to tell the story of her husband and her son's passing over and over again. And I suspect she was caught up in her grief. Now, I hope you haven't experienced the crippling effect of grief, but I imagine many of us have. A few years ago, my brother passed away, and I had a really hard time doing normal things, such as sleeping and eating. But a really good friend stepped into that place with me and she made frequent deliveries of kefir 
because strangely enough, that fermented yogurt drink didn't make me sick. She cared for me when I couldn't care for myself. Naturally, Ruth won my heart when she stepped into that same space with Naomi. So Ruth's plan was to find a field that was being harvested and pick up dropped grain. This is a practice called gleaning. Gleaning was a primary means of support for anyone who was down and out. And it was explained in the Israelite law. This is how it worked. So the edges of the field were not supposed to be harvested. The gleanings, or what wasn't picked up in the first pass, um, was supposed to be left behind. Then the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow could come and gather it. And this was the practice of intentionally leaving margin. Or to say it another way, gleaning is when a person chooses to be less profitable than they could be for the benefit of others. This is explained in a few different places, but let's look at one. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. Suppose you're harvesting your crops. Then do not harvest all the way to the edges of your field. And do not pick up that grain you missed. Do not go over your land a second time. Leave it for the poor. Leave it for the poor people and the outsiders. I am the Lord your God. If you were to continue to read verse after verse about gleaning, you would notice the same thing restated over and over again. Except it benefits an even wider audience. The system was designed to assist the fatherless, the widow, the poor, and the foreigner. And there's something absolutely beautiful here. You see, God reveals his heart to us through scripture. And I absolutely don't want us to miss this. You see, God longs for all of his creation to have a vibrant and flourishing life. And he teaches us how to do this. God is aware of our natural inclination to get all we can. Like, remember when you were a kid and you'd be walking along and you saw a penny on the floor? We all want all that we can get. So God commands us and teaches us how to take care of others. This is our God. The heart of our God is so good. He cares about all people. He's very intentional about making sure the poor, the marginalized, the foreigner, and the immigrant are cared for. God teaches us how life goes best, and then he invites us to faithfully follow him. So Ruth goes to glean, and she arrives at a field ready to work. The field might have looked something like this. And I picture her with her hair tied up in the messiest top knot, her dress hitched up to make a vintage romper, and her nails getting filled with grime as she shakes through the dirt looking for those dropped grains of barley. She is stanky, and she is hauling sheaves like she's in CrossFit, walking row after row after row. And I wonder if she popped a few of these grains into her mouth from time to time. After all, she was hungry if not starving. And you know how good food tastes when you're really hungry? It's like all your taste buds join up in the hallelujah chorus at that first bite. And I imagine that barley tasted divine. With just a little food, her hope was on the rise. Little did she know that this story was about to get even better. 
because it was at this time that it just so happens that our rich, single, generous, kind landowner, other brother Boaz, comes on the scene to check on his workers and the progress of his business. He says, the Lord be with you. And they respond and they say, the Lord bless you. It's a pretty good sign of a great boss. Then Boaz scans his field and he notices something or someone. You see, there's a gleaner in his field that he has never seen before. Remember, this is a small village made up of mostly family. So naturally he was curious. He called over the lead worker in charge to inquire. And what a surprise he was in for when he found out there's a possible family connection. See, this gleaner had married into the family of Elimelech. And Boaz was born into the family of Elimelech. Ha <laughs> ha, the plot thickens. So I imagine Boaz had a few options running through his mind. First, he could go meet her, but that could get weird. Second, he could ask his field manager to keep tabs on her. That's probably the safest choice, right? Or third, he could ignore her. After all, she was already gleaning, and that was all he was required to do. But in verse 8, we see Boaz go above and beyond. He speaks to Ruth. Check out what he says. Boaz said to Ruth, dear, dear woman, listen to me. Don't pick up grain in any other field. Stay here with the women who work for me. Keep your eyes down on the field. Walk behind the woman and pick up the grain that is left. I told the men not to bother you. When you are thirsty, go and get a drink. Now that might seem like a simple conversation, but there is a lot going on here and I wanna unpack it for you. So first Boaz invites Ruth to only work in his field. Then he gives her some helpful tips on how to behave. He says, stay here with the women. You know that feeling when you start a new job and you're like, what am I supposed to do? And while she has worked in a field before, there are new dynamics, but Boaz invites her to find belonging with these other women and learn from them. Second, he says, keep your eyes down. He doesn't want her drawing any extra attention to herself or living in fear as she scans the field for threats. I imagine it was heard like this. I'll take care of the dangers. You just work, Ruth. He invites her to pick up grain. Now, I got to wondering if gleaning was a thing that people did in Moab. After all, that's all Ruth knows. And if she had never done this before, I imagine it felt very awkward to go out into a stranger's field simply to pick up grain that had been left. And his permission must have been very reassuring. And then last, but perhaps most importantly, Boaz tells the men not to touch her. The Jewish, or the Jewish Publication Society translates this word to read molest. They explain that women working in the fields were often subject to unsolicited advances. As you might imagine, a foreigner from a disliked ethnic group, and especially one whom people had already formed an opinion about, because as you remember, the Moabite women, they are more than easily approachable. They would be even more likely to be victimized. And Boaz is a good man. He wants to make sure that Ruth has no stories to tweet about in his field. Hashtag me too. And the icing on the cake? 
Boaz invites Ruth to drink the water supplied for his own workers. See, Boaz followed God's instructions found in Leviticus 19. He is a man living in obedience to God's laws and instructions. And when he does, immigrants are cared for, the vulnerable are protected, and the poor are fed. As I pondered Boaz, I realized that he is a picture of how we should be, obeying God's commands even when our culture teaches us something else. What would it look like if we chose to be less profitable than we could be for the benefit of others? I think it would be similar. Might the immigrant be cared for, the vulnerable be protected, and the poor fed? Ruth recognized that what Boaz had offered her was a very special privilege. As you remember, all she wanted was a field to glean in. But what transpired far exceeded her initial hope. And because of it, she bowed down in the dust of the field to indicate her thankfulness. Down in that dirt, she looked up at Boaz and asked a question. She said, why? Why have you treated me so well? She knows that she's not an Israelite, and she does not expect any special treatment. Boaz's words have left her astonished. And he answers her by saying, Because you loved Naomi so much that you were willing to leave your father and your mother and serve her in this strange land. Then Boaz continues to give Ruth a blessing, which he delivers in public. Boaz, the rich, generous landowner, is giving Ruth, the poor, widowed enemy, praise in public. His blessing is lavish. He asks God to richly reward her. In Ruth 2.12, we'd read this blessing. It says, may the Lord reward you for what you have done. May the Lord, the God of Israel, bless you richly. You have come to him to find safety under his wing. In this blessing, the author explains to us how Ruth was able to be so brave and loyal to Naomi. Verse 12 tells us that she had taken refuge under the wing of God. Pause. What does that even mean? See, there's this beautiful theme repeated throughout Scripture of a mama bird protecting her young. Let's look at a few different verses. Psalm 36, 7. How priceless your faithful love is. People find safety in the shadow of your wing. Psalm 91, 4. He will cover you with his wings. Under the feathers of his wings, you will find safety. He is faithful. In fact, I found over 50 verses in the Bible about the wing of God, found both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then in Matthew 23, Jesus continues this metaphor. He tells a crowd of his desire to gather the people of Jerusalem under his wing as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. The thought of finding refuge under God's wing is incredibly appealing to me. 
Maybe some of us feel like this today. You might be fed up, making a fuss, squawking, trying your hardest to make something happen, but to no avail. Yet God is inviting us to this. He is inviting us to bring our anxieties and our frustrations to him and find rest under his wing. God invites people to take refuge under his wing and Ruth has taken God up on his offer. I wanna make clear one thing. As C.S. Lewis says, life with God is not an immunity from difficulties, but peace within difficulties. And it is from that place of peace with God that Ruth is able to love and give her life away to her mother-in-law, Naomi. So we find Boaz praising her. Ruth has taken refuge in Yahweh, the God she has chosen to worship because of Naomi's faith. Remember in Ruth 1.6, Ruth tells Naomi, your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth has trusted God to be who he says he is. And God has taken care of this homeless, hungry widow by bringing her to Boaz's field. Ruth has taken refuge under the wing of God, and God has given her safe refuge. Now this is the good news of our God. You see, he will have mercy on anyone, seriously, anyone who will take refuge in him, even a Moabitess. His goodness is abundant and consistent, and we are invited to find refuge in him. I don't care what you've done or how bad you think you've been. There's room for you under God's wing. So what does it mean to take refuge in God? It means choosing to trust that God is who he says he is and choosing his ways. The easy thing for Ruth would have been to stay in Moab, but she knew that Naomi, her elderly mother-in-law, was at risk. She recognized the opportunity to step into that situation and to assist in the flourishing of Naomi. It wouldn't be easy, but she knew enough about God to know that she could count on his faithful presence. We find ourselves in a similar situation to Ruth every day. When things get scary or get overwhelming, when finances don't make sense, when you don't know how to help your child, or maybe you don't like your spouse, when the doctor gives you bad news, or your biggest fear becomes reality, what do you do? Do you turn to God looking for a reminder of who he is? Do you ask God to remind you of what he values? Do you accept his invitation to join him in the reconciliation of all things, including your day-to-day -day life? There is verse after verse sprinkled throughout the Bible reminding us of God's promise to be faithfully present. And I want to read a handful of them to you. Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself will go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will never leave you. He'll never desert you. So don't be afraid. Don't lose hope. 
Deuteronomy 33:27. God lives forever. You can run to him for safety. His powerful arms are always there to carry you. Isaiah 41:10. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not be terrified. I am your God. I will make you strong and help you. I will hold you safe in my hands. I always do what's right. Isaiah 41:13. I am the Lord your God. I take hold of your right hand. I say to you, do not be afraid. I will help you. Matthew 28, 20. Jesus said, you can be sure that I'm always with you, even until the very end. Psalm 46, 1. God is our place of safety. He gives us strength. He's always there to help us in times of trouble. Not only is God with us, and constantly for us. But Romans 8.34 tells us this. Christ Jesus who died, and more than that, who was raised back to life, he's at the right hand of God and is constantly praying for us. That's incredible. When we look to God in the midst of our stress and trust that he is who he says he is, we take refuge in God. Ruth did the unexpected thing, the hard thing that no one expected her to do. And she did it because she saw the need and knew that she could take refuge in God, a God who is unshaken by life events and is eternally in power. Ruth joined God, bringing about his kingdom, where the widow is cared for. What is God inviting you to join him in? What skill could you offer to someone in need? Is there someone in your life who needs company? What might God want you to join him in? God's wing isn't just for Ruth. It's for you too. So as the day continues, Boaz realizes that Ruth doesn't have any food for lunch. So he invites her to join the other workers and share the food that he has provided. Doesn't it feel good to belong? Well, normally gleaners didn't sit with the workers, but Boaz demonstrated to the other workers that she had been welcomed. And to make it even more incredible, Boaz served Ruth. Wait, who served Ruth? Boaz served Ruth, and in this patriarchal society, it was always the opposite. And yet Boaz, the owner, the boss, the dude of all dudes, served Ruth, who was poor, who was needy, who was a woman, and who was the enemy. This is a little taste of the kingdom of God. And it reminds me a lot of Jesus' instructions to love our enemies. As Charles Spurgeon said, in this we can say that Jesus Christ is our great and glorious Boaz. He became a servant to the least of these, us. Not only does Boaz serve her, but he gives her more than she could possibly eat. And as the meal concludes, he gives her even more good news. He says, you can work amongst the standing sheaves, which means no more squats. Um, And he tells the workers to pull stocks out of their own bundles and drop them on the floor so Ruth could have them. 
This is ridiculous. This is so good. Boaz is incredible. And when I was reading this story, I found myself quite captivated by this moment. Have you ever found it hard to extend dignity to another? Because I have. And what does Boaz do? He honors her humanity and extends dignity at great expense to himself. Boaz leverages his privilege for the purpose of God and the flourishing of God's creation. He uses his bounty as a blessing. Or, as this teacher named Bianca Olteff says, if we don't see the purpose of our blessing, then this is what will happen. Our handfuls will become our handcuffs, and our possessions will become our obsessions, and our position will have no mission. Our abundance will simply go to waste. I invite you to consider who you might need to see through the eyes of God instead of through our cultural lens. How can you use your abundance to bring about God's kingdom right here in Bend, Oregon? Boaz sets an incredible example. As we see, Ruth works until sundown and has about an ephah of unhusked grain. That's like six gallons or like 35 pounds. And she brings it home. That amount could feed about two people for about a week. So they're better off than a day ago, but this is no long-term solution. And as the sun is setting, Ruth returns to her mother-in-law. I imagine her with like a big bag over her back. Um, and I can only imagine what a good moment it was when Ruth opens up this bag to display her bounty of grain and then hands over her leftover lunch. Then Ruth tells Naomi about this day. She's like, I found a field and I was invited to work. And then I met the field owner and he was kind. He helped me and he gave me food and he gave me water. And then he told the workers to give me some of their harvest. It was such a wild day. And then Naomi speaks. And it might be my favorite part of the entire book. She says, the Lord is still being kind to those who are living and those who are dead. I quickly want to take you back to Ruth 1.8. Listen to what Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws. You were kind to your husbands who have died. You have also been kind to me. So may the Lord be just as kind to you. Here we see that the Lord has answered Naomi's prayer. In that moment, Naomi recognizes God's kindness. It was the Lord who stopped the famine. It was the Lord who bound Ruth to Naomi in love. It was the Lord who brought Ruth to Boaz's field. The Lord is kind. He is good to all who take refuge under his wing. God's love has broken through and likely for the first time, Naomi sees it. I imagine Naomi picking at those barley grains, popping them in her mouth one by one and marveling at that moment. She says, God has not stopped showing us his kindness. She may have been skeptical and even timid to wonder if she still deserved God's faithful presence. After all, she had followed her husband to enemy land. She had endured great loss 
what she might have wrongly assumed was punishment. She wandered back home in desperation, and she felt unworthy, unworthy of God's presence. And yet in this moment, we see God's goodness made manifest in his faithful presence. He has not left Naomi. God is still with her. The question that is begging to be asked is how can we become aware of God's faithful presence in our life? I would like to suggest that we can do this through the practices and the disciplines of the faith, specifically meditating on God's words, I'd suggest the Gospels, and quieting our minds in the practice of prayer. And when we do this, we have a greater capacity for recognizing the goodness of God in our day-to-day lives. In closing, I'd like to read an excerpt from one of C.S. Lewis's books, titled A Horse and His Boy. In this scene, a boy Shasta has been left behind. Shasta is this mistreated orphan who has escaped the harsh realities of his life in hope of finding something better. And as he travels on alone, he begins to feel very sorry for himself because of all of his terrible misfortunes that he's had and continues to have. But in the midst of this emptiness, Aslan appears. You should know that Aslan is depicted as a talking lion and described as the king of all high kings. He's also a type of Christ in this series. Shasta begins by saying, oh, I'm the unluckiest person in the whole world. Aslan says, tell me your sorrows. So Shasta told how he had never known his real father or his mother and had instead been brought up so sternly by the fishermen. Then he told the story of his, of his escape and being chased by lions, then forced to swim for his life. Then of all the dangers at night and the beasts who howled at him in the desert and the heat and the thirst of the journey and how very long it had been since he had had anything to eat. And Aslan says, I do not call you unfortunate. At this, Shasta gaped with an open mouth and said nothing. Aslan said, I was the one who brought you to a great friend. It was I who comforted you among the house of the dead. I was the one who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the one who gave the horses the new strength for the last mile so you should reach the king in time. And I was the one who pushed the boat in which you lay as a small child so near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at night to receive you. Who are you? asked Shasta. Aslan said, myself, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and happy. And then a third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. Shasta was no longer afraid, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. 
Yet, he felt glad, too. We, too, can take joy and be glad that we have a God who promises his faithful presence to us. We might not always realize it, and we might mistakenly think that God has left us. We, too, might rename ourselves bitter or forsaken, like Naomi. But the story of Ruth reminds us that we can be assured of God's faithful presence, even in the most hopeless and heartbreaking of situations. God has given himself the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God's promise to be faithfully present is something we can count on. But he is not just with us. He is for us. And he's not just for you, and he's not just for me. He's for the poor, and the marginalized, and the widow, and the fatherless also. As we come to the table, I want to remind you what Boaz said to Ruth. Come over here. Have some bread. Dip it in the wine. It echoes the invitation Jesus has given to us too. Jesus says, come, take this bread and dip it in the wine. And when you do, remember me. I invite you to remember that the king of all kings left heaven and came to earth. He was born as a baby named Jesus. He was crucified and buried. But three days later, he rose again to remind all humanity that he is the son of God and the savior of the world. And in doing so, God continues to invite us to find our place of refuge under his wing and be assured by his good and faithful presence. Let's pray. God, you are the God who created the entire world, the heavens and the earth. You are the God who created each one of us and longs for us to know you. Thank you for being a God who longs to be known. I ask that every single person here at Antioch, every single follower of you in Bend, would be reminded today that you are a God who left heaven and came to earth to be near to us. Remind us of your love for us. Even when we doubt your presence, help us to be assured of your good and faithful presence so that we can find refuge under your wing. God, thank you for being such a good God. We love you. Amen.